Welcome to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM. And this is Sheila Blake, and I'm here with my husband, Peter. Peter, take it away. Thank you, Sheila. What is it in a portrait by Rembrandt or Vermeer that captivates us with the uncanny feeling that we recognize the real life of the person before us? Roland Barthes, the writer, was searching through pictures of his mother, who had recently died, looking for one in which he could recognize her. But he only saw her in fragments. He wrote, All the photographs of my mother, which I was looking through, were a little like so many masks. At the last photograph, suddenly the mask vanished. There remained a soul, ageless but not timeless, since this heir was the person I used to see, consubstantial with her face, each day of her long life. What is it that can make a photograph or portrait express this? Staring straight into the lens Just a Polaroid shot Someone took on the spot No beginning, no end It's just a moment in time Can't have back You never left but your back just in case My favorite picture of you Is bent and it's faded And it's pinned to my wall Oh, and you were so angry It's hard to believe When we were lovers at all There's a fire in your eyes Got your heart on your sleeve, curse on your lips, but all I can see is beautiful. My favorite picture of you is the one where you're. Stand up, angel, who won't back down. Nobody's fool, nobody's clown. You're smarter than that. My favorite picture of you is one where it hasn't rained yet. Oh, as I recall. There came a winter's fall and we got soaking wet A thousand words in the blink of an eye The camera loves you and so 
so do I click My favorite picture The song we just heard was written and sung by Guy Clark about his wife Susanna, who had died of cancer. And like Barth, he was looking through old photographs. And the one that captured her was from 30 years earlier, when she was angry at a raucous party going on at her house, and she went outside, and somebody took a snapshot of her. That's the picture through which Guy Clark saw the real person. In this episode of Artist Experience, we're going to explore this stunning exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery called American Portraiture Today. It's here in Washington, D.C. The exhibition shows the finalists of the Outwood Butcherver competition, which is held every three years. You can go to the website on the Smithsonian Museum of American Art Portrait Gallery to see the images, but better still, go to the show. Tom Sinekis has the day off, but Peter's here. We went to the museum on a rainy Saturday afternoon, and there were so many people taking it in. Hello, it's good to be here. So the Outwind Portrait Competition is really the best of the best in portraiture. Out of 2,700 portraits entered in the competition, the jurors picked 42. Yes, 42 in the most varied materials, both traditional and innovative, and using old crafts like woodwork and stitchery and new technology that I can't even fathom that becomes relevant and timely now. For the six years that we've been doing this program, we've been talking, thinking, reflecting, trying to find many answers to the question, why do we look at art? And at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, these works just hit you in the chest. There are 42 portraits, a few paintings, a pack of photographs, boxes lit from behind with sound and videos and some things I can't even understand what, how they're doing this. And every single one is a knockout. As I said, out of this cream of the cream selection, I would love to see the ones that didn't make it in. The wonderful portrait artist Alice Neal said, People's images reflect the era in a way that nothing else could. When portraits are good art, they reflect the culture, the time, and many other things. In a competition such as the Outwin, there's an open call to artists and a selection jury new each time, and the results show themes that are reflecting our culture as it is at this moment. So what's coursing through is a portrait of this time, Latinx art and history, migration, the pandemic, social outrage, a far, far cry from what we might have thought about portraits like George Washington out in our school walls with his wooden teeth or the early American stoic, awkward family portraits by itinerant painters making the portraits of people who could afford their services as a sign that these families have arrived at a certain status. Or John Singer Sargent, his elegant portraits of society women, or Modigliani, whose stylized portraits in their simplicity capture the soul of the sitter. This exhibit brings us right up to the present, both in its thwarting and reminders of convention. I think that that element of amazement that several of the pieces had gives life to the exhibition, to our experience of that collection as a whole. You know, I'd say that most, if not all, of the pieces were so highly original that you felt, I've never seen anything like this before. 
which surprised me. I mean, when I hear the word portraits, I think of the family portraits in rich people's houses, that sort of image you were just talking about. Of course, there is a tradition of using that same style of portraiture in order to honor the not-rich people, like civil rights leaders or a lovely portrait of Ella Fitzgerald. But the art in the exhibition is different from that. None of the people pictured are rich or famous. People pictured are honored, but not because of their great achievements or noble deeds, but because our loved ones should be honored. And certain extraordinary portraits succeed in showing what you might call the soul of a person. There's a photograph, Shana, by Grade Solomon, of a young woman, maybe 20 years old, in the car on a spontaneous road trip, taken by her lifelong friend, a young man. And that whole air, that's the word that Roland Barth finally settled on, the air of youth, just beginning to figure out who they are, it's revealed. Yes, and I couldn't help notice how many photographs were there and how few actual paintings, although there are some. It's making me feel that we might be losing our capacity for what's been considered the art of oil painting. And in that category, I include acrylic acrylics, but I mean that tradition and also the appreciation. It makes me feel sad. I was struck by that too. Mostly photographs, videos, and collages. There's a link on the Artist Experience website to our Facebook page, which contains images of what we're talking about. But even better is go to the, go to the, um, the National Portrait Gallery's exhibition site, the Out One 2022, and uh, they have all of, they have uh, images of all of the uh, work there. In the three years since the last Out One competition, profound changes in our culture were brought about by the COVID pandemic. I don't think there are any specific references to COVID in the art collected here, but the curate has noticed a great emphasis on family, on the one hand, and depictions of great loneliness on the other. There was a lot of art using collage and unusual materials, sort of like they were made at the kitchen table. Yeah, there was one amazing piece. It was one, really one of my favorites by Donna Castellanos of a woman named Bertha in, quote, Bertha, I'd like to know where you got that notion. In an old-fashioned wallpapered room made entirely out of fabric, pincushions, zippers, thread, buttons, snaps, hooks and eyes, and other sewing notions, they're all, you find, oh, that's how they did that. They put all those hooks and eyes together for that pattern. And there's an unforgettable cigarette in the ashtray with, and the smoke was made of rising out of tangled threads and the pincushions for boobs stuck onto Bertha's chest and her cat. What is that made out of? This image was astounding. And how much there is to discover. You couldn't believe that these items were made with sewing notions. And it's clever and it's obsessive and it's full of surprises. I'm not, I'm sure it's not true, but 
the, the counts seem to be woven out of cat hair. It could be. <laughs> you might be right about that. Well, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD Tacoma Radio. We were talking today about the exhibition of the Outwin 2022 Portrait Competition at the National Portrait Gallery here in Washington, D.C. So I think I can safely say that the emotional power of each and every work was beautiful and sad and enlightening. I learned things I've never heard of. So here's a little background. When I was 23, I moved to North Carolina, the South, and was given the most wonderful book by James Agee and Walker Evans, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. If you don't know about that book, in 1936, James Agee, who was from Knoxville, Tennessee, and was now about 27, was living in New York, writing for Fortune magazine, and he got an assignment to write an article about sharecroppers in Alabama. Walker Evans was a photographer. He was six years older, and the two of them spent eight weeks that summer living with three families who were barely but proudly surviving complete ruin. This is where the phrase dirt poor comes from. James Agee fell in love with the families, and when Fortune magazine decided not to publish the article and the photographs, James Agee and Walker Evans made it into a book, which has become a classic. The photographs are among the most iconic pictures in the history of photography in America. The book is called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. It gave me history and insight and a sense of lasting beauty in the South, which has stayed with me. For those born after the Great Depression, it is something that can only be visualized through photography and film. Certain images have come to define our view of that uncertain time. A migrant mother with her three small children, a farmer with his sons struggling through a dust storm, a family of sharecroppers gathered outside their cab in their home, a white landlord. That's a one by Walker Evans I always think about. It's, he's only a slight class above his tenants that he's collecting rent from, and that he had a jacket, but it was mismatched with his pants, and he had a hat on. And these photographs are icons of an era. Many of these familiar images were created by one small government agency established by Franklin Roosevelt, the Farm Security Administration, or FSA. Between 1935 and 1943, FSA photographers produced nearly 80,000 pictures of life in the Depression-era America. This remains the largest documentary photography project of a people that has ever undertaken. The FSA was one of the most controversial agencies. It advocated government planning and economic intervention to improve living conditions in rural America. Conservative critics attacked the FSA and its predecessor, the Resettlement Administration, as socialistic. To defend and promote the Resettlement Administration, Rexford Tugwell, who worked actually with Eleanor Roosevelt in developing Greenbelt, Maryland, created a publicity department to document rural poverty and government effort, efforts to alleviate it. It included a photographic unit with an odd name, the historical section. In 1937, the RA and its historical section were merged into the newly created FSA. 
Tugwell chose Roy Stryker, who was a college economics instructor, to run the historical section. Even though he wasn't a photographer, Stryker directed an extraordinary group of men and women who today comprise a virtual who's who of 20th century documentary photography. Many later forged careers that helped define photojournalism at magazines like Life and Look. Roy Stryker's name is synonymous with these photographs which include those of Walker Evans, Dorothea Lang, Ben Sean, and Gordon Parks. As the FSA photo project neared its end, Roy Stryker faced a dilemma. From 1935 to 1943, he had created a vast trove of nearly 80,000 photographs and 68,000 unprinted negatives. Stryker recognized the importance of this collection to history, and he was afraid it might be dispersed when it came under full control of the Office of War Information, which is the OWI. So Stryker had been maneuvering as early as 1939 to secure a safe harbor for the collection in the Library of Congress. And now, working his with his friend Archibald MacLeish, who, parentheses, was a friend of James Agee, and uh, was both the Librarian of Congress and Assistant Director of the OWI, Stryker helped arrange his transfer of the entire FSA photo file to the library's custody under unusual terms. The library took, took title to the collection in 1944, but then loaned it back to the OWI for the duration of the war. In 1946, the collection was physically moved to the library where it is available for everyone now for study and reproduction. You can go there and make reproductions of those photographs. This is in contrast to the New Deal uh, Government Arts Project, which was a separate agency, and they hired about 10,000 artists to produce murals, easel paintings, sculpture, graphic arts, posters, photography, theater, scenic designs, and arts and crafts. Many of those works, which were made to keep artists employed during the Depression, were just thrown out when the program was over. Although there are some remaining, most of them are like the WPA murals in libraries and public places. Many of the portable works, like the easel paintings, were lost or abandoned or given away. And as custodian of the work, which, which remains federal property, the General Services Administration, the GSA, maintains an inventory and works with the FBI and art community to identify and recover WPA art. In 2014, the GSA estimated that only 20,000 of the portable works have been located to date, and the artists, many of them, were able to become world-class artists, and you know, you would know, you know their names. So, it has appeared that Stryker was heroic in his effort to save the trove of photographs. The FSA photographic unit was not a jobs, jobs program like the New Deal's Federal Arts Project. Photographers now hired solely for their skills. Most of them were in their 20s or 30s. They traveled the nation on assignments that could last for months. So in the portrait show, Okay, we're back to the portrait show. <laughs> Sorry for that long. Well, that was <laughs> interesting, though. Well, I think it's very interesting, and especially because of what you're going to hear now. There was a big, beautiful, photographically drawn portrait in graphite of an old black gentleman. It's almost life-size with his hand tipping his hat. 
And in the drawing, there's a large black hole on the left side of his chest. So what is that? It turns out that Roy Stryker, for whatever reason, shot big black holes in the negatives of so many wonderful pictures. Why? We don't know. They didn't fit his agenda or he was using the negatives for target practice, which is what it looks like, because those holes are just random in the photographs. Some of the photographers, like Ben Sean, were furious when they found out. Why? We don't know why. But whoever can know what kind of destruction was in Roy Stryker's heart and that he had the power to use it. So the artists, Joel Daniel Phillips and Quraysh Ali Lasamna of Kill Negative 13 gives us a piece of hidden history in this beautiful drawing. I think I read somewhere, uh, is this true, that Stryker stopped punching holes in the negatives at some point, which means he got the message. He thought about how he might be viewed in the future. He heard your derision coming down through the decades. Well, good. Well, good. <laughs> well, good. You know, I think that you, you, you were right. I think it was uh, that the purpose of the program uh, was to support certain political uh, actions. And so photographs which did not um, contribute to a certain image uh, were the ones that he wanted to make sure that they would not be shown. Mm. It could be to have to go through a lot yeah. to figure that out. And maybe some people have. Yeah. It's interesting how these things come to light at a certain point. Right. So you're listening to the Artist Experience radio show on WOWD, Tacoma Radio. We're talking today about the exhibition of the portrait competition at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. The show is up until February 26, 2023. So that image that we were just talking about killed negative number 13. The tenant farmer and the black hole in his torso, in a way, it also functions as a sort of redemption for Stryker, uh, being the proximate cause of this beauty. Maybe that's going too far, but... The image is beautiful. It is, in fact, a painting, a photorealist painting, copied from the photograph, including the black hole, which appears as sort of a mysterious black sun. And the image, as you said, it's enlarged, much larger than any photographic print. It's, it's about life size, and the man tipping his hat appears to be tipping to you and me, the viewers. It's interesting. He's not looking at us. He's looking down. He looks like a kind, resilient person, a poor man, dressed in a coat, which looks handmade, not a wealthy man's coat. It's dusty or stained, hard to interpret. Is it a Sunday go-to-church coat, or is it a working coat? I don't know, but the coat is striking. His stubbled, worn face is striking. His practiced humility is striking. The photorealism is striking. The inexplicable fact of the program manager wanting to damage the photograph so it would never be shown. And yet he didn't throw it away. That question is striking. Okay, so, you know, the poem seemed to be integrated. I mean, 
the 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 picture, the portrait seemed to be integrated with a poem uh, that accompanied it. It was on the wall, a poem titled "Hospitality: A Poetic Intervention in Response to Killed Negative Number 13 by Quraysh Ali Lansana. So I'll read it for us. What rain must come for a black man to wet? What sound makes us fall? The deep rivers of my hands, dry creeks, my forehead, to Arkansas heat I long to forget. Seed won't take to tears. I beg heaven to weep, new life in scent of sky, sobs on musty earth. We are drought and flood, thunder and drench, downpour and light. My knees callous dirt as my eyes to this stranger, blessing in my blood dressed, in wisdom not my own, but not yours. I am this moment, this life, who are you to pause my son up with your whiteness and picture box, to demand stillness in a land that little rewards idle? You offer no food for my grandson's mouths, no shelter from raging wind. Every day the sun is angry. This coat, tired is my hope, starving little ones on my brow. Harvest a dream buried in dust. Good day, sir. Oh, thank you, Peter. So now we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a minute or so with more about the Atwin Portrait Competition at the National Portrait Gallery. This is WOWD Tacoma Radio.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today with my husband, Peter Blake. We're talking about the Outwin National Portrait Competition at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. The show is up until February 26, 2023. So in 2016, the winner of the Outwin Portrait Competition was Amy Sherald, and from there she was commissioned to do the portrait of First Lady Michelle Obama. That commission paid her rent on her studio and put her beautiful work on wings for the world to see. The winner of the 2022 competition, Allison Elizabeth Taylor, received the $25,000 prize, and there's no question that this is completely the right choice. It's called Anthony Cuts Under the Williamsburg Bridge, Morning. There are so many things to say, so I'll start with a picture. It's 72 by 53 inches, and it's complex, but ordered, and it's a picture of Anthony, who is giving a haircut to a woman in a chair, wearing red pants, and her back is to you, so you can only see her reflected in this Baroque mirror that's hanging on a chain-link fence in front of her, with her dark hair and her mask, and if that's one thing that alludes to to COVID. COVID. Yeah, so there's graffiti under the bridge. And up on the left, you see barrels and trash. And you could see the structure of the underpinnings of the bridge with the sunrise coming through. Anthony himself is styling hair like an athlete in his shorts and tank top and tennis shoes. Anthony Payne is a hair groomer who took his scissors, mirror, and chair to the streets after his workplace closed. He gave free haircuts and turned the proceeds from donations to the Black Lives Matter movement after the murder of George Floyd. It's very detailed, but all the parts fit together in a composition that could have come from someone studying Piero della Francesca, and probably Alison Terrell has. There's a lot of art history in this piece, and yet it's amazingly contemporary. And then you look closely, and you see that it's not painted but made of tiny pieces of wood veneers that the artist Allison Taylor calls hybrid marquetry. Along with the oil, she uses oil and acrylic paint, inkjet prints, shellac, and sawdust. And she is paying homage to Louis XIV, who loved veneers, and the mirror is straight out of Versailles. And she's paying homage to Anthony. What a piece! I think when you see a work of art that has everything, a narrative, history, life, and is done with such mastery, you know what art's all about. In the catalog, they've included some preliminary sketches for the piece, and it gives you insight that she's a really good draftsman, and just like any good artist, she's working it out. But then there's the laborious process of the marquetry. It knocks your socks off. And check out Anthony's socks, by the way, and the muscles on his legs. Right. The, that <laughs> artist doesn't stop short, does she? <laughs> no. no. She steps up and she keeps going and going <laughs> and going so that the care and craft and the imagination seem infinite. Yes. Infinity is always welcome. <laughs> and then, you know, there's that, that piece made of smoke. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's Bride by T.R. Erickson. Erickson was born in Ohio, and now he lives in Brooklyn. 
He's an artist who in recent years made his work to explore, memorialize, and maybe come to some answers about his mother who committed suicide in 2003. This piece is made by making what seems like a silk screen of a photograph of his mother as she was as a bride and by burning cigarettes so that the smoke comes through up through the screen and settles on a gessoed wood piece and it forms a nicotine image. It's transparent, it's golden, it's ethereal. Her hands are holding flowers next to her chin. This is what I mean about combining the traditional and the new. What a portrait! He also did a work around his mother with alcoholic cocktails and funerary ashes. Mm. Funerary ashes of family members. Yeah, you can stand there with your mouth open. And it's also beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. The image of a beautiful woman is emerging just barely out of the white canvas. I didn't realize who it was at all, so thanks for that backstory. I saw, I saw a faint figure. She looked like a Madonna, a queen of heaven, just barely visible, manifesting out of the mist like I was one of the three peasant children who saw the Virgin of Fatima. I stared and stared at that. It, it seemed like a miracle. Yeah, and then there's a floating head on a white ground with some shards that are filling the void of the white ground, and it's called Cutting Edge by Inga Gazaiti. The elaborate scarf that's wrapped around her head is made... It looks like a crumpled masterpiece that reminds me of a Japanese landscape. It's made of wood and used skateboards. That one, uh, it's kind of like kind of like a Monet. When you're up close to it, you just see the pieces of painted wood and plastic cut with a jigsaw, glued up in stacks. But when you stand back, an intense illusion of three dimensions appears, very freaky in a good way. We were lamenting the scarcity of paintings in the show, but you have to say the photographs are amazing. And the photorealist paintings, too. In a painting, you're always aware of the painting. In the photographs here in the exhibit, maybe not generally, but here, you have the uncanny feeling that you're looking at the person. You're staring into their face. Many of them are young and beautiful, and that's nice, of course. In our culture, probably in all cultures, you're not allowed to stare at people. So it's terrific that in this exhibition, you're able to look deeply at, say, two sisters from to me, the other side of the tracks with their tattooed eyebrows, eyelash extensions, and piercings, and just see their beauty, loneliness, and sisterhood. It's documentary in that way. You're getting to see something that you're normally not allowed to look at very closely. Well, I think I'm so used to technically amazing photographs. I don't know. They have so much now. You can, you know, photographs that are like the size of a wall. Mm. And these photographs, they, they have a sitter and everything is planned out. 
And the photographer can make pictures with amazing resolution. They can change the color of the light. And it's true. You still have to have a good model to start with. And Mari Hernandez's portrait of Celia Lopez is definitely gorgeous. She's a fine-looking woman. And her hat and her feather and her beautiful skin. Lopez is a member of the Tapilan Coahuiltecan Nation. And she's photographed in clothing that represents her cultural heritage. The Coahuiltecan people are part of a community of urban Indians that Celia Lopez, in particular, would represent. Though Hernandez took great care in making that image, and the one that would eventually be displayed in the nation's capital, no photographer knows at the time when they're taking a portrait whether it will ultimately convey the truth and depth of their subject. That is a very interesting idea. So when Hernandez saw the results, she knew the time had arrived for her to apply to the prestigious triannual portrait competition and she had wanted to enter that for a long time. She said, how could they not love it? It's such a beautiful image of her. She's a beautiful young woman, so I was feeling pretty confident when I entered it. And they give her a special commendation for this uh -huh. photograph. For me, though, I, it's, I guess, predictable, but perfect in every sense. And I technically, I have no idea what this takes to arrive at a photograph like this. The composition is in thirds, and it's a highly recommended way of composing a picture. And probably that and the muted colors and the beautiful profile is completely professional, completely by the rules. What's not to like? There's nothing but safety in looking at this. So a long time ago, I was during an art show, and a woman came up to me and asked me for feedback so she could tell her husband about his photograph. And he had submitted a photograph, if I remember, of some purple flowers on a path with a nice light and something you could see on a calendar, nothing offensive. So I said to his wife, tell your husband to set up his camera exactly the way he wants it and take the picture and then turn around and take a picture of what's behind him. Because I like surprises. So in this case, it's a perfect portrait picture. But like the Leonard Cohen song, Anthem, I'm going to read these beautiful words. Ring the bell that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. Yes, I think that's true. Um, especially in this context which is a contest, the ones that amaze you tend to get the high scores. Uh, and that portrait doesn't amaze you, but it does the work of a good portrait. You know, um, it's a full profile. Uh, it must be the only one that's a full profile. Portraits are like funhouse mirrors. You're looking at something that is much stranger than it should be. People who look alive, who seem to look back at us. But the strangeness may come from very deep in human consciousness. Part of the strangeness in looking at other people. Walker Percy asked, Why is it that looking into the eyes of another person is, if prolonged past a second, a perilous affair? 
I've often thought about that observation by Percy. It seems like a window into some powerful secrets about being human. I mean that looking into someone's eyes is tremendously unsettling, veering quickly to either love or hate or fear. Um, in looking at a portrait, you're not subject to that intensity, but many of these take a step in that direction. Looking at a picture of a human being can be an experience that is felt deep in the body. Looking at a painted human being. The Zen master Dogen, and believe me, I'm quoting a Zen master. I'm, I'm just saying this because I read it, and it's so cool. Dogen says, Unsurpassed enlightenment is a painting. The entire phenomenal universe and the empty sky are nothing but a painting. Since this is so, there is no remedy for satisfying hunger other than a painted rice cake. Without painted hunger, you can never become a true person. Wow. Nice. <laughs> Think about that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> You know, if we have time for one more work, I'd like to talk about the triptych photograph, Dad at Man-Made Pond by David Hilliard, where in the center photograph of the three triptych pieces, uh, a table is set like an altar into the water of a New England lake, like maybe New Hampshire. And on the table is the urn with the ashes of the artist's father. The subject of the work is, of course, important to the artist, but I was amazed by something technical. The photographs of the lake, the clear water lapping the gravelly shore, the trees in the distance, were quite unusually beautiful, despite it being a very traditional subject. I mean, there are a lot of artists who live in the New England forest near a pond, but in this work, unlike a photograph taken with one lens, one especially dramatic vista in the distance was in perfect focus, just as the stones under the edge of the water at your feet. Other sections of the far shoreline were out of focus, as you would expect. And at the edge of the water, at your feet, as I said, I, I slowly realized it was imaged from a perspective, the perspective of looking down, as you would if you were standing there in front of the table. You would look down to see the edge of the lake and then raise your eyes up and look up to see the far shore. And at each point, that is the view you see in the photograph. This is not possible in a single camera. You can also see into the water under the surface, and you can see the surface of the water with its little wavelets and the reflections of the far shore, reflections of the sky and the clouds and the water plants under the surface. This is what Monet did with his water lily paintings. So I have a, a guess, a hypothesis. Uh, the wall text and the catalog say nothing about this, but I think the photograph is stitched together in a computer from different individual photographs at different focuses and different um, uh, orientations, different directions. You know, and maybe this technique is old hat to current photographers. Uh, everything is changing so fast. I've never seen this before.
it's done with such natural ease uh, that I think most viewers would simply react to it in full innocence of the technique as a beautiful scene. Yeah, I did. I can't believe that I was saving that picture to talk about for last. I'm so glad you did it. David Hillard was extremely close to his father, and they would spend time at that pond. His father wanted to be buried holding a book of Thoreau's Walden, but he died suddenly of COVID, and his ashes are in an urn in the box on that table in the water. So I want to talk about a graphite painting of 2020 Tema with her father and her Aunt Amy's quilt. The artist is Tim Lowley from Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Something I wanted to add, as so many of these wonderful artists are from everywhere in the country, not necessarily the big cities, but towns in the Midwest, and their work is up to the present in every way, except they are seemingly devoid of artistic trends, which is so refreshing. There's a sincerity in everything. So the artist's daughter is Tema. She's 17. She's severely disabled, almost from birth. Her parents care for her lovingly. They keep steady uh, with their religious practices. And Tim has developed his work over the years, painting Tema countless times. He studied art when abstract art was the thing, but he's found his way to representational art, and currently he works from or with photographs. What I see in his work is himself, his pain, his love, and it has nothing to do with the mechanical copying of the photograph. He brings his deepest feelings to his work. That's giving us his deepest commitment to life. Stay with it. He is giving you something he has. And that's what the best art can do, communicate the depths of experience and what we as viewers can do is receive that experience. I can only hope to do this in my own work, but work like Tim Lowley's sets a very high expectation. So one other thing, there are some really good videos. When I was at the show, I could not separate myself. Yeah, we didn't talk about the videos, yeah. right? Yeah, because it's just a whole other deal, so we have to go back, yeah, of course. We do. Yeah, so we hope you enjoyed our show, and stay tuned for our next program, This Music, from 10 a.m. till 1 o'clock. Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play you free jazz and other music that is entirely improvised. No standards, no standard repertoire. Our friend Gail Behrens on alternate Sunday evenings from 8 to 10 hosts Night Ride Home. Gail features singer-songwriters and alternative and indie bands. Just good songwriting. In this time slot next week, listen to Lost Treasures. DJ Mackey spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international. And please go online to TacomaRadio.org to see the programming. And while you're there, click on the Donate button. And credit us with one of, as one of your favorite shows. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. The birds they sang at the break of day start again. Them say, Don't dwell on what is.
has passed away Or what is yet to be Yeah, the war They will be fought again The holy dove She will be cut again
This is Artist Experience on WOWD Tacoma Radio. Keep your dial fixed for this music at the top of the hour with avant-garde jazz, free jazz, Bobby Hill and Clay Fink. We'll go out with a song full of the longing and affirmation that we found in the Smithsonian exhibition, American Portraiture Today. Just 
somehow I turn to you.